Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. My guest this morning is Rabbi Robert Murray of Temple Israel in Ottawa, Canada. Rabbi Murray is the senior rabbi of the largest reform congregation in Ottawa, uh, Ontario, Canada, and the only congregation between reform congregation between Toronto, which has the largest Jewish population in Canada, and Montreal, which has the second largest population of Jews in uh, Canada. And recently, Rabbi Murray attended the biennial of the Union of Reform Judaism, the uh, organization to which his synagogue belongs, um, as do all the other reform synagogues in uh, North America, and there are arms of which uh, extend throughout the world. So I want to invite him to chat about his experience at the URJ Biennial. Uh, Rabbi Murray, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's a pleasure. So perhaps you can remind older listeners and newer listeners, when we use the term Reform Judaism, what are we referring to? We're referring to a, a Jewish movement that began primarily in Germany in the 1830s and 40s, and it began as a way of trying to create a Judaism that would um, integrate with secular life. <laughs> So many of the um, changes that were made were changes that were made to um, both outward appearance of Jewish practice and, and also uh, internal practices that um, followed the popular at the time sense of rationality, that everything had to be rational. And if it didn't have a rational purpose, then you could dispense with it. So out, uh, out of that came a movement in which um, many aspects of Jewish ritual um, were no longer practiced. Things like uh, kashrut, or the dietary laws, um, uh, primary use of Hebrew in prayer, those kinds of things were seen as not rational, and therefore dispensed with. And, and they built their changes on two premises, if I understand it. One, that... Um, the Torah, the five books of Moses, was a document that had been transmitted from antiquity to modern ages, but the authorship of that document was not seen by the early um, change agents of Judaism to be God's word, but rather the product of uh, enlightened human beings— I think that's correct way to say it. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, the if you believe that the Torah is um, a divine document, meaning that God wrote it, then there's a different kind of imperative to follow the rules contained there. Correct. If, um, as the early reformers certainly did, they believed that this was a product of the experience of the people with God, and this was a human document that people created, and and those experiences and those laws. Um, are ones that uh, are, are not necessarily things that we have to 
uh, follow, but are open to interpretation. And that the document, as many of them understood it, was intended to help separate Jews from the land and the people in which they lived. And now in the middle of the 19th century or the later latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, their experience was perhaps uh, exactly the opposite. They were not looking to necessarily separate themselves from their neighbors in every detail. Well, quite the opposite. What they wanted was to leave the ghetto behind them and to fully integrate and be uh, completely a part of uh, normative uh, mainstream secular society. So they left um, the particularistic clothing in the ghetto and the language and um, strove to really create a Judaism that looked and felt normal within secular society of the time. And the... um conference that you attended and your synagogue. So your synagogue is affiliated with this organization known as the Union of Reform Judaism. And you attended this biennial conference. um, And your hope in attending was what? Well, first of all, you know, the, the movement has significantly changed over the last you know, 150 or 200 years. Aha, good. How has it changed? So there is, um, as a concept, the movement is always reforming and reshaping itself. And so while a lot of those traditional or ritual pieces that were sort of thrown out in the early part uh, as a reaction to what was then traditional Judaism, have made their way back into Jewish practice and Jewish life. So if you were to come to Temple Israel, you'll hear a service that is probably about 70 or 80 percent in Hebrew and about 10 or 20 percent in English. And why has that um, change occurred? I think as the needs of people have changed and as the um, connection of the population and the comfort of the population with um, doing things that were particularly uh, Jewish or, or that looked and felt different was seen as okay. They, they had achieved the goal of integrating into secular life. They had become leaders in civic areas and political arenas and business, and they were comfortable. They, they didn't have to feel as if they had to uh, change something or hide something. So having reached the point of feeling... Um, okay about being part of, um, what shall we say, the modern world, although we acknowledge that there are um, Jews who have not come um, to any kind of accommodation with that, um, Reform Judaism has felt comfortable um, reintegrating certain traditional behaviors into the life of the congregation and the community, uh, feeling, if I hear you correctly, that the time is right to experience, um, if rationality was the basis for making decisions 150 years ago, then looking for other means of making decisions is appropriate now. Correct. And, and, and trying to create a Judaism that best expresses a spirituality and, and a faith that will resonate with the modern world. Wonderful. 
Um, and so the, um, the biennial convention is an opportunity for the Union for Reform Judaism to gather together with its constituent uh, organizations of congregations and social justice, social action auxiliaries, and every two years gather in, in this um, very powerful and important meeting of, this time it was 6,000 people, um, so it's uh, actually the largest biennial they've had, and um, the, the Reform Movement is the largest uh, religious organization, Jewish religious organization, um, in North America. Well, that's interesting that it's the largest, and it represents, therefore, the uh, largest um, number of Jews who formally affiliate with the Jewish world, I guess. Right. So, you know, in this convention are um, a series of uh, plenaries and services and, and sessions and, and learning that cover the full spectrum. Um, there is a, a leadership body. Um, uh, there's a president of the Union for Reform Judaism, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, and, and a series of uh, vice presidents that cover different areas, youth programs, social justice, etc. <clears throat> and uh, each of those creates a, a different uh, sense. It's interesting to note that uh, the Canadian congregations who are part of the reform movement have somewhat of a, a disproportionate uh, voice. Um, because we represent an entire country, the 20 or so Canadian reform congregations um, are able to exercise a, a kind of an influence that another group of 20 congregations out of the thousand or more congregations within the URJ would never have. And so one of the only six uh, resolutions that were passed by the movement was a resolution uh, created um, by the Canadian, the Canadian Council for Reform Judaism. And what did that resolution uh, say and bind the movement to, or at least ex offer an expression of the movement's uh, will as uh, enunciated in the gathering? It was around the uh, issue of the plight of the refugees, as many, many, almost all uh, of the Canadian Reform congregations have extended themselves and have adopted refugees and have been involved with refugee programming, including uh, at Temple Israel, where we have adopted uh, a Syrian family two years ago. And we're now in the process of creating a new program to do training for people to begin to go into the workforce. But the training isn't about working. The training is about how do you work in a multi-faith, multi-societal, multi-background environment. And, helping and, and this would be for the that. immigrants who have come not just to Temple Israel, but um, to Ottawa. Correct. It would be for anybody who is a uh, fairly new arrived uh, either refugee or immigrant and who would like to further this training. Fascinating. Uh, a true reflection um, I guess we Canadians can pat ourselves on the back that unlike the United States, which is looking to um, limit immigration and uh, identify certain classes of immigrants in certain countries as dangerous, um, you're suggesting that your synagogue is looking at how to train people who are immigrants that want to go into the workplace to work in a multicultural, multinational environment. Correct. Uh, you know, we, what we want to do is give them the experience of meeting with lots of people from lots of different backgrounds. 
so that they, they can uh, have met with the members of the Jewish community and the Sikh community and the Ismaili communities and the, the, the various other Muslim communities and Christian communities and, and really understand that what really makes us strong and powerful is our acceptance and welcoming of everybody and allowing everybody to celebrate and experience whatever their faith or cultural traditions are. And you and your congregation see this kind of programming as an extension of your um, religious beliefs and your religious commitments to uh, a socially uh, progressive world. So one of the hallmarks of Reformed Judaism has for, for you know, uh, well, forever really, been the commitment to uh, healing the world. In Hebrew, the term is tikkun olam, the idea that we have an obligation to partner with God and to make our world just a little bit better every time we can. And part of this program and other programs like it is a way for us to do that work of healing the world, of making the world um, a little bit better one piece at a time. Some of our listeners will hear um, the resonance of uh, what's often called the social gospel, that um, as the prophets of old spoke about healing the sick and uh, feeding the hungry and sheltering the homeless and clothing the poor and caring for the widow and the orphan, so too in the New Testament, um, Protestantism especially has found a uh, calling which has been identified as the social gospel, um, which leads churches, of course, to be very active in um, communal activities to alleviate poverty. Um, so Rabbi Murray, having attended this, I'm sure it's not the first one, uh, first biennial that you've attended, what were the highlights of this uh, biennial uh, for you, both as a rabbi and as a Canadian rabbi? You know, it, it's a fascinating experience to come together with uh, like-minded uh, Reformed Jews from across North America. And again, and I would remind our listeners that Rabbi Murray's liberal congregation is the only congregation of his kind in Canada and the only one between Montreal and Toronto. And so, um, you know, when we, when we experience Reformed Judaism in Ottawa, we're very much on our own. So, you know, we, we, we meet with the entire Reform community every Shabbat. <laughs> you know, it's not like we have uh, sister congregations as they do in Toronto, which right. has seven or ten, eight uh, uh, other Reform congregations. We are the Reform congregation for Ottawa. So, And you um, are the head Reform rabbi of Ottawa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and uh, that will um, that sometimes is freeing, and sometimes it makes you lonely because you don't have other congregations to interact with and do programs with and, and things like that. So we do make uh, alliances and, and friends with uh, other Jewish congregations uh, who are uh, more like-minded, and, and we do programming with them. But it's different when you sit down to a family table. And in this case, uh, we would have the opportunity to sit down and uh, share Shabbat services with 6,000 other Reformed Jews. Like watching on Sunday morning uh, tele-evangelism, in which they might be in a studio in Charlotte, North Carolina, with um, 
10,000 worshipers. You had the experience this uh, past Shabbat of worshiping with 6,000 like-minded members of the Reform community. And um, I am guessing that um, some of the music was music that you don't use. Uh, Liturgical music was some music that you don't use in Ottawa. So the, the Canadian congregations, by and large, are a little bit more traditional. We're, we, we use a little bit more of the traditional tunes. We have more Hebrew, etc. And so you're right. Some of the music that was used um, is, is not the music that we use here. Um, but it, uh, it's always good to hear different, uh, different new offerings. I mean, part of the value of the biennial is to give a venue for new Jewish uh, musicians and artists and poets and and scholars to um, teach and to share. And so we, we had choirs of 125 cantors, and we had um, musicians, of uh, Jewish musicians of all sorts, share their, their com- compositions and try to create a, um, a, a way for the entire community to come together in prayer. And was there something about this year's service that struck you as, um, I wouldn't say unique, but as um, uh, emotionally resonant? Well, what was interesting, um, you know, was that um, we, are, we are in a period of, of transition in the movement. The movement is trying to um, figure itself out. Um, and, and how do you mean that, you yeah. know, for our listeners? What does that mean to figure itself out? So um, this this particular, and I've been to Biennial since the late 80s or so, uh, off and on, and um, this particular Biennial, uh, I think, was representative of what's on the hearts and minds of most of the people uh, who are there who predominantly come from um, U.S. congregations. And so the political agenda was very, very strong and high um, as as the rank and file of the reform movement, by and large, is um, very is, is liberal and not in support of uh, President Trump at all. So, as a Canadian, was that um, off-putting or exciting? Well, it's very interesting because we, we hear you that's know, a better term, media, I suppose. You hear different things, and this is an opportunity to sort of see how people are really feeling and see how uh, how how they're. Um, their reactions to what's going on are, are so very powerful and very deep. And did you have a sense from um, this experience that um, the politics of the new president um, on the um, domestic level and the politics of the new president in his support of Israel was uh, conflictual for the participants um, of uh, the convention. I mean, um, his recent announcement of support in Israel um, has been widely um, supported by some Jewish organizations and other Jewish organizations have been less supportive of it. Uh, Where does the uh, Union of Reform Judaism fall in the line of support or uh, questioning. So I think, like most other uh, uh, Jewish organizations, nobody denies the importance that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Everybody agrees Jerusalem has always been the capital of Israel. It always will be. What people are concerned about 
Uh, is that uh, President Trump seems to be using this particular issue to further his own goals and not necessarily um, make that uh, official move, although it's been U.S. legal policy since the early 90s. Um, right, and, and I think that's actually... interesting for our listeners to uh, remember that uh, President Trump is not the first U.S. president to declare that uh, Jerusalem is the capital of the state of Israel. Um, his no, pre- his fact- predecessor did it. His predecessor did it. Um, I think all the way back to um, Jimmy Carter in the 80s. Right. Oh. And it, it was, it's been official U.S. law since, I think, 93 or 95 or something like that. And um, essentially, each president has delayed right. the move. Um, so it isn't as if he's doing something sort of proactively, he's not, he's simply not delaying the move. And the question that many people are asking and, and the pointed, pointedly commenting around is, you know, why is he doing it? And, you know, he, uh, he seems to be doing it for his own um, political gains and not necessarily to um, create a, a, a just or, or lasting peace within, within Israel. Um, and I won't ask you where you are on the issue, but I would ask whether the convention in the manner in which it was um, structured um, f- for a Canadian was too um, American or whether there was enough for you as a Canadian rabbi to find um, a place of interest. You know, there are, there are the uh, official sessions of the convention, the plenaries, the services, etc. And, and almost as important, or, or maybe even more, are the uh, greetings and, and uh, gatherings informally. And so this was an excellent opportunity for me to gather with the other Canadian Reform rabbis and to talk about some of the issues that, uh, that, that we particularly are, are facing. And... Um what issues would reform rabbis uh, uh, most be concerned about at this point in the history of the Jewish people? I, I think the relevancy question is is paramount. I mean, the, the the idea of you know are we creating a Jewish movement that is relevant to the rank and file uh, in in the congregations? You know, are are we creating a movement that speaks to um, the the millennial or the generation X Y, and and those are very difficult questions. We've had a particular structure of of Jewish religious life for 150 years, namely the um, synagogue. Yeah, and with its you know the way in which it's structured, the question is: is that what the structure should be moving forward? Uh, and many, um, I think it would be fair to say, probably many other denominations might ask the same thing, both uh, Christian and Jewish. I think this is an uh, an absolute uh, uh, universal question that we have that we're that we're asking in in lots of different religious organizations. Uh, what resonates? What what speaks to the people? What's eternal and what? Uh, therefore, needs to stay, and what needs to change. Um, right. and, and did you come back with the definitive answer? I've solved all the problems. Ah, Ruch Hashem. 
I mean, it's an ongoing conversation, right? It's an ongoing conversation, and, and part of it is also knowing that we're not alone in the in the uh, in the process. So, um, you know, we have a tremendous resources available to us um, as part of a, a union for reform Judaism congregation. We have lots of uh, there's lots of electronic communication uh, forums that uh, that are there to help bring people together and share best practices and share ideas and. And those sorts of things, there are face-to-face meetings, there are uh, committee work, um, you know, national policies, all these kinds of things, which, which help us um, in, in this sort of figuring out who we are and who we'd like to be process. So it sounds like you, uh, as an attendee, were energized by the numbers of people who attended, by some of the individual sessions. Uh, certainly, religiously, it is powerful to hear new music and new words. Um, how do you translate some of your enthusiasm and energy to your congregation? Um, did many of them attend, or is it going to be solely on your uh, back that this is communicated? So we had one other person from uh, the synagogue uh, attend, who is the immediate past president of the synagogue, and uh, and, and she uh, also uh, will be bringing back a number of different programmatic ideas and different um, um, sort of agenda items for the board to uh, think about and, and process on and discuss, and hopefully that we can um, move ourselves forward in, a, in a several uh, particular areas, including things like adult uh, programming and... Uh, and uh, maybe some affinity group programming, like a sisterhood sort of an uh, experience that we're just reinvigorating here at the synagogue. Um, other things that uh, are important about how do you make sure that your social justice programming is not just simply doing nice things, but doing nice things with an understanding of why we as Jews are doing this. Those are all powerful challenges. And as you said, um, all of it comes in the face of the existential challenge to the model that has been in uh, the cornerstone of Jewish life in North America, the congregational model in which individuals are asked to make an affinity choice to a particular congregation and to a particular movement. Sometimes those affinity choices are to particular rabbis and leaders. But um, those are real challenges, and I would gather that they, uh, I would hypothesize that they are challenges to churches as well. Uh, did you come back with one uh, story that you want to share in the 30 seconds that's left to us? You know, I think one of the, one of the speakers we had was um, a, a reverend, Reverend Barber, who um, is from North Carolina and is really a, an incredible speaker with an incredible message. And the message really is that poverty and homelessness and, and people who are suffering it is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. I'm going to leave you right there because I can't think of a better place uh, to end this morning's in interview, making a clear distinction between our actions as moral people rather than um, people of a political stripe. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Robert Murray of Temple Israel, Ottawa, Canada, for sharing with us this morning about uh, 
the reform movement of North America, which is connected to the reform movement of the world. For those of you unable to listen this morning, you can hear our rebroadcast on uh, podcast on iTunes or a CHRI website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good morning and shalom. Shalom.